There has been a pretty stable relationship in our little world between the price of buildings, the price of construction, the rents you can get, and the OPEX. In other words, that when we were talking about early in the conversation about those value add deals, like you have been able to get your unlevered yield to exceed your cost of your your loan constant in a pretty stable way for 10 years. Okay? And that relationship held true even though prices were sort of slowly rising during that period and rents were rising and so were construction prices and interest rates like moved around like but the equation was pretty stable. The equation is now as we've discussed like fully out of whack. Like you're just not compensated for the risk, okay? So I don't know if I want to say that that's like a like a like a, an indicator for the wider economy or anything but it definitely makes me feel like Wiley Coyote may have run off the cliff. Now like Wiley Coyote can stay in the air you know until he looks down and but but he possibly can stay up there for a long time but that is what is making me nervous. Hello everyone, my name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate firm in the great state of Texas. We buy Class B industrial across all the major markets. We are committed to technology. We have a world-class culture. And more than anything, we are a forward-thinking company. If you want to stay in the know on all things going on at Fort Capital, visit us at fortcapitallp.com, follow us on LinkedIn, or subscribe to this podcast. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Enjoy the show. Do you know the data on like how many units in LA Metro are rent control versus how many are not? Yeah, I don't have the exact number, but it's the vast, vast majority of apartments in Los Angeles are rent controlled. So uh, I should say rent stabilized. So that means that technically what's going on is, so there is city, there's a city rent stabilization ordinance, which is any building built prior to September of 1978 is subject to RSO, the city ordinance. California has a another, has a statewide rent control, which is any building older than 15 years old, you're limited in your rent increases to CPI plus 5%. So this really the state one is like not that relevant because CPI plus 5% is like fine. Like you're, you're not, that, that, that doesn't, it, that's fair, like more than fair from a landlord's perspective. But the city one is really tough. And that's what, that the vast, vast majority of apartments in Los Angeles are under the city rent stabilization ordinance. And it has all kinds of crazy impacts on the rental market here. To give you one example, in Dallas, if you have an increase in demand, right? And we're, let's assume we're at a specific period in time. So like not long enough for developers to come in and build more just like on a certain a certain month for whatever reason new company moves to Dallas and you guys have you know thousands of new jobs are created there and so thousands of new apartments need to get rented the the that increased demand is spread across the entire apartment stock in the Dallas metro right so it has the impact of almost imperceptibly raising everyone's rent, like whatever, two bucks or something like that. In other words, on renewal for those all those leases, the landlord can get a tiny bit more. Ah, okay? uh, yeah, okay. Right? In LA, because the vast majority of apartment stock is locked up by RSO, like in other words, you're like right now, like I can't, for RSO units, I can't even, I haven't been able to raise the rent in a year, like zero. Or in an ordinary year, it's 3%. So what that means is that when there's new demand, it's not 
spread across the entire supply. It is concentrated in the tiny portion of the supply that is either non-rent control or happens to be vacant at that particular moment, which is only a tiny fraction of total supply. And so what's go- what goes on is even small increases in demand shoot the asking rents in the spot market to the moon. And that's purely a result of RSA. It's, it's purely because the, the supply demand is sort of like being perverted by the regulation. So that bodes well for the, the new stuff that you're buying that doesn't have rent control on it. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, that, you're, and, and also, you're actually yeah. feeling it like 10x what would happen in DFW where it could be spread out. Exactly. Oh, wow. And it's also why the value add business works. And it's why like it's so hard to build and it's so hard to vacate RSO units. But like when you have like brand new units in a good area, there's just like there's not a lot of competition for them. So and there's so to the extent that there's demand growth, it's just like it just you know, it just goes nuts. So on the gut rehabs that you do where you take it down to the studs and basically rebuild it all, does that reset the clock on whether it's a rent controlled building or not? Yeah. So fortunately, the way RSO is designed, and this is like not the case for like that ordinance that they just did in St. Paul and and some other ones in New York and everything. So we have what's called vacancy decontrol. And that means that when an apartment becomes vacant, you can reset it to whatever the market will bear. And then the new tenant who comes in increases on that guy are, 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 are limited by law. So effectively, every lease in an RSO unit is like a life lease. Got like, it. People... Like, it's crazy. People are like, where are the leases for this building? And you're kind of like, well, we the le- we have leases from 1985, but no one ever bothered to get new leases with the tenants because they're, you're not allowed. They just, it doesn't, there's no, there's no point. They just go month to month indefinitely forever. So anyway, so yeah, that's the, uh, the state of affairs. Okay. So, so basically once you've got remodeled a, a job and got it fully leased, it's essentially like a not a bond, but you, it's a basically like fixed income. Like you pretty much know what you got unless a tenant moves out and then you can restart again. Yeah. And and what the thing is that when your rents are at market, you get the normal amount of turnover, like the normal turnover for like a, whatever, like a hot, like a class a or B plus building is like what tenants turn over every two years or every 20 months or something like it, it. So when your rents are at market, you get enough you generally speaking get enough turn that you're not the rent the the impact of rent stabilization is pretty minor. It what happens where it's not minor is you get these people who buy a building and forget to raise the rent for 10 years. And then like wake up one day and they're like, okay, like time to raise my rent. And you're not allowed to go back and get the increases retroactively. So you can find yourself very and it frequently happens. You have these owners who have rents that are like 50% below market or 75% below market. And those tenants have the right to remain forever and like they're not going to leave. Anyway, so so it creates I mean it creates like frequently when I'm talking to people about this market who are not used to rent control, it's like like buildings in Los Angeles are worth considerably more vacant than they are leased for the most part. Like people like from out of from other places are like, what? It's like down is up in this crazy world that we live in. It's like what we talked about the other day. How dare you encumber your building with a bunch of leases? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you rent a unit and you're in a rent-controlled unit, are you allowed to only have one lease in the whole city? Or could you go lease like hundreds of units under one name and basically kind of create this <laughs> thing? You could. So it's not the city that would stop you from doing that. And we have had people, we've had people do that. We eventually catch them like, We'll have someone come lease a unit, and then we see it on Airbnb. So, and there, so there are people who have made businesses out of doing that. We, of course, like the leases do not allow that, so we put a stop to it very quickly when it happens. You're not, you're, you're not allowed. What stops you from doing that is you're not allowed. Like the lease prevents unauthorized subleasing, so that's like we can prevent that. But in theory, someone could go do that. Yes, got it. All right, we're getting there. The new stuff. So you're buying these things on a four cap, brand new units, new construction. You're not having to go through the gut rehab. Are you buying them vacant or are you buying them leased? Leased mostly. I mean, we're, and that's, we actually would be comfortable taking leasing risk. It's more about the financing. So what I'm not comfortable with is I'm not going to take a bridge loan and then and then have to lease up and 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 like be like clenching you know waiting watching the the tenure 
until we stabilize. Because like the, you don't want to buy a four cap and then the interest rates spike and then you go to, to actually get your permanent loan and suddenly it's way higher than what you were expecting and it kills you. So I'm willing to take the leasing risk, but only to the extent that I can lock in an interest rate at the time of acquisition. And my understanding is that pro- there are maybe some products like that, but I haven't found a great one yet. So for the time being, we're, you know, we're buying basically stabilized buildings. The trick though is like, not all brand new buildings are created equal. First of all, if the developer is not careful, he can find himself, his new building subject to RSO also. If you rip down RSO units to build a new building and you do not replace them with affordable ones, then you are going to, then, then your, your alternative is to end up building a new building, which is RSO. Yeah. <laughs> which is like, <laughs> And I think a lot of people actually don't know to check that and then so buy a new building and then surprise. And this is, by the way, like this is like one of the things that has scared me about like going into other markets is that like I am so far into the weeds on Los Angeles regulations. And so I like I'm, I'm kind of like scared by what I don't know in other places because we know so much about Los Angeles. So the other thing to say, though, is there's kind of like a paradox operating, which is to say that like I want to buy new construction buildings. But I do not want to buy them where there are lots of other new construction buildings. Like my whole thing is I want supply where there's no supply. So, and of course, the easiest place to build new buildings is in places that have been upzoned and therefore allow you to build a lot of buildings. But the problem is, you, of course, like you go buy this new building, it just leased up and then boom, the person next door builds a similar building. And now when they're done and your leases roll, you're both competing to to sign tenants and that's a disaster. So I'm specifically looking for those needle in a haystack new buildings that are in areas where it's hard to build. But that's like an I mean that's like a obviously that's like a Goldilocks situation. You've got the supply constraints that are standard in Los Angeles, but you've got a non-rent control beautiful thing that you can, you know, that that you can just own and uh, and hopefully get the benefit of the rent increases. And when you buy it no matter in in because you hold things for long periods of time at no point in the decades that follow can that building then all of a sudden become a rent control building cuz it's now old enough or is there a um, date it at will which be, it does under current law it will be under state rent control after 15 years but state but state law is CPI plus 5% like i will happily sign up for CPI plus 5% all day cuz what you're really worried about with long duration assets like this is your cash flows not keeping up with inflation. So that because that's just value destructive from your perspective. So to, as long as it's CPI plus something, like yeah, are there like insane scenarios that I could imagine where you could be falling behind a little bit maybe, but it's like it's pretty hard to it's it's pretty hard to imagine. With RSO where they say every year, okay, it's 3% this year. Like, and it's a political decision about what that number is. You better believe that it can fall behind inflation. Like, it, you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 in fact, there's like strong political incentives for the number to be set below inflation. I mean, that's happening right now. There's no yeah, way no, that we're really displacing year, expense cost. Yeah, exactly. My man, good guy guarantee on Twitter talks <laughs> about this with respect to New York City because they have vacancy control there. Like, you're effectively like buying like a declining annuity. And that's like, that's like, I mean, there's a business doing that, but that's not my business. Like I want to be buying stuff where, where I expect the cash flow to grow at a rate which exceeds inflation. Dumb question. 15 years comes around and let's just say I'm making up a number. A unit's 5,000 bucks the year that happens. And so the year that it turns into an RSO state, uh, yeah, state, RSO is the city one. There's state. Uh, you mean the, when it turns into the state rent control? Yeah. Correct. At that 15 year mark, you would start at five thousand, and there would be CPI plus five percent. Great. Next year, economic downturn. That tenant leaves the unit, and now you release it for four thousand. Do you restart now at four thousand and work your way back, or were you grandfathered in at five? No, it's actually a great question. No, you're you would restart. And I mean, it's like, look, this is one of the dumb things about rent control is like, there are scenarios where landlords will just, I mean, lease it themselves. We probably wouldn't do that, but they'll just like not put units back on the market or, or they'll put them back and just hold out. They're just like, no, nope, you know, I'm not like, I'm not taking less than five because 
it's not worth it for me to permanently impair the build, the value of my building. Yeah. Or they'll just say lease it for five and we'll somehow like disc. Dis- yeah, oh. I get it. Yeah. They're not going backwards. No, not if you're smart. I mean, we we have a, a, one of our property management clients who's like a very long-term owner, pretty large portfolio in LA. He cut his rents on his RSO buildings in response to the like early 90s uh, recession in LA. And he has an identifiable percentage of his current tenants today in 2021 are people who stayed from 1993 because he cut their rents in these RSO buildings and they just like stayed. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, no, it's a real, it's a real danger. All right. I'm going to ask, just keep asking some dumb questions here. So when no, we were talking not about, dumb, but you don't have to preface it like that. This when is, we were this talking, is like, this is crazy. This is all new to me. It's not crazy to me. It's new to me. I'm, I, I just have not lived in this world. So I'm, I'm super interested. All right. So when we talked about value add, the discussion was, okay, I can get it to a five and a quarter cap, un- unlevered yield on cost. But between my interest rate plus my amortization costs, I'm not beating what I- I'm basically paying the government rather than paying my investors. Now we're buying what you're doing now at a four cap. Are the loans still not putting you at where no, you the can difference? fix? So First of all, these deals are a little bigger than our standard value add, but for an acquisition loan, for reasons that sort of defy comprehension, it is possible <laughs> to get a, um, like a, if you take a 50% LTV loan, you can get a 10-year fixed interest only. So you're in that scenario, like you're, so you, you, you borrow at three and a half fixed for 10 years IO, you're getting a little bit of positive leverage against your four cap. I mean, it's not like, the leverage isn't driving the returns, but it's it's nice. And it's so the investors in these kind of core deals, they're like none of them are under the impression that we're gonna like shoot the lights out on these things. What they're doing is saying, like, look, I don't want to own bonds, both because I expect interest rates will rise and therefore the value of bonds will decline, and also because it, uh, collecting interest income is like enormously tax inefficient. Like you don't want to be a lender unless it well, I, now I'm sort of this is my own craziness, but like I am utterly uninterested in being a lender unless the interest rate is really high or unless I was like investing out of my IRA or I was pension fund or something that wasn't paying taxes. But as a tax paying investor, you pay income tax on interest income. It's like insane. So what this does is it's sort of, it's like a, it's a very nice, so you, you do like 50% LTV loans. So it's pretty low risk. You're buying brand new buildings in Los Angeles, supply constrained areas, lots of demand growth. So you would expect that the the rents will rise faster than inflation. And you're fixing a nice loan. It's not huge loans. You're not taking like the risk that things go bad. You're going to lose the building. Like at 50% LTV, it feels pretty safe. But you are getting a nice kind of it's like an additional helping of inflation protection effectively. Like you're you get the inflation protection that comes from the fact that the Apartments are non-rent controlled, but you also have you, you also just borrowed a bunch of money that you're going to pay back in nominal dollars. Like I borrowed 10 million, I'm going to pay them back 10 million. So if there's a bunch of inflation between now and 10 years from now, that 10 million is going to be worth a lot less than it is today. It's so like the real interest rate on these loans, depending on what your view is of inflation, is like arguably negative, right? Like if you're borrowing at three percent interest only, and, and inflation is if you, real inflation is like a five, they're paying you every year to, to borrow their money. So it's like a nice, it's like a kind of a nice, like sort of like Goldilocks. Oh, and the 4% or whatever it ends up being is tax sheltered by the depreciation on the building. So it's like, it's not shooting anyone's lights out. It's just getting a, like a hope a 4% and hopefully rising tax sheltered yield. You know, it's not again, and then hopefully the building appreciates over time and you get to refinance it and pull some money out and everything. It's not again, like it's not, this is not a, some revolutionary strategy or something. It's just the smartest thing. If you want to invest in Los Angeles multifamily right now, this is the smartest way I know how to do it. Yeah. I, I've talked to this about Siegel, Andrew Siegel a bit, but essentially maybe it's a sign of our times. It's not going to last very long, but the, the banks are in theory underwater on the loans that they're making today, the day they make them until inflation happens. And his argument is at some point that they can't keep doing this. Yeah, no, I know it's and it. I mean, I've heard him make a like make that argument, and I mean, I I think there's a lot of merit to it, 
the, the problem is who knows when that music's going to stop. So like, and, and the, and the, and the other thing to say is push to its logical conclusion. You'd want to just like lever the hell up, just like really go for it. Right. If someone's handing out 50 cent dollars, you take as many of those as you can get. But of course, like leverage magnifies outcomes in both directions. And, you know, you, we have recessions too, and rents come down and people lose buildings. So like, I think, for me personally, the right answer is borrow, but be pretty restrained about it. So let's just maybe just, we can tie it in with a recession discussion. We could talk about what's the future of adaptive, like where do you want to be five or 10 years from now? Um, clearly, like you're built for the day that like gold is pouring in the streets, like that's, that's when idea, yeah. everything clicks. Do you want to take this outside of LA? Do you want to just keep growing? Like, how have you thought about and how has Twitter influence and all these ideas influence? Like, where will Moses be 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a really good question. The way that I've always thought about the business, I don't, I, I think hasn't changed, which is to say, I would like to build the largest real estate private equity business of which I am personally capable of building, but I am not in a rush to get there. In other words, like the way, obviously the way you can grow really fast is just like wave money in the door, borrow as much as you can, buy the biggest things you can and like cross your fingers and hope it works out. And by the way, <laughs> that was the right strategy over the last 10 years. So, and I wasn't doing it. And like the people who were doing it turned out to have been a lot smarter than me. So I don't, I, in no way do I mean to denigrate that way of thinking about the world because like that's been right for a long time. But I am not personally built for that. So I want to build a big business. I am not in a particular rush to get there. I don't want to blow up. I'm not the kind of person who, I mean, look, if I had to go tell a bunch of investors that I lost their money, like I, I would be able to go have those phone calls, but I like, it's hard to even describe in words how, how that would, what that would do to my psyche. So I'm not trying to lose investor money. And uh, and I'm not in a rush because like my lifestyle is pretty good. Like, I mean, I, I, my kids go to nice private school and I, you know, I complain on Twitter sometimes about feeling broke. Some, and I do honestly feel broke sometimes, but like overall I live in a nice house. I travel, like we have a nice lifestyle. So I, you know, and, and that will happen whether we buy X amount next year or Y amount, like it, it, it's all fine. So the speed at which we will go in the direction of that goal is going to be dictated to a large extent by the market. So if there's a lot of good stuff to buy, we're going to buy a lot of good stuff. And if there's not, we're going to buy less. And okay, like I don't, I'm already like so beyond where I thought I would be. And I, and A, and B, like I'm thinking about this, like my kid, what hopefully one of my kids running this business. 30 years from now or whatever. And like, it'll be bigger than by then than they that I can imagine now. And certainly bigger than anything that they have any right to expect. So like, who cares? Like I, not, not who cares, but like, I just don't, I'm not, I'm just not in a rush. Is what I'm yeah. say. You're not, there's nothing you need to buy tomorrow that need, I mean, you're just, you're comfortable and you realize like most, you know, like a lot of smart people that the majority, you might feel like you're not keeping up right now per se, but in those moments in time that you just described is where you lap the field. Yes. I mean, I, I should say that a big struggle that I've had in my career is comparing myself to other people. And I still struggle with that to this day, but like, that's just not a good way to go through life. A like, it, it's like no shit. <laughs> you know I mean? like, like anyone who's wise knows that from the beginning, it took me like an extra 10 years or whatever to figure that out. But it, it's like, that's, that's like an obvious one. Another thing that's happened though, and this is maybe in the last year or two is that some of my peers who shot out ahead of me career wise, not even necessarily in real estate, but like have started to experience the reversals that are like a normal part of a career. Like sometimes things don't go well. Like that's just like my like life. Meanwhile, our like very slow and steady thing that started out really small just keeps expanding every year. And it we're not taking a lot of risk. Uh, knock on wood. So we're not taking a lot of risk that I know about. <laughs> And it's sort of, and it's compounding and it's like in the beginning, it was almost like imperceptible, but 
it the the rate is continuing and like that you know what happens with a compounding curve and not that we're near that thing where it goes vertical but like i don't know it it, it feels pretty good so it, so i i have i feel better like i i'm still you can tell i'm still comparing myself to other people even though i shouldn't but i'm i feel good about what we've built and where we're going and all that stuff and again like like it, however long it takes, it takes. I don't have a, there's not like a specific goal in mind. So if I don't, if I don't buy 50 million next year, I'm gonna, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, that's not how it works. It doesn't change. Yeah. I think that one way to maybe rephrase what, what you were saying also is the amount of effort and force that you have to push to now keep this thing growing actually feels, it probably felt like you were working way harder year one to have this than it feels like right now to have, you know, this. Totally. And, and I mean, and my business is not as well run as yours is like being really candid. Like it's still much more dependent on, on my partner and me, like personal, our personal efforts it, than it should be. And hopefully than it will be. And so, but yeah, no, I mean, it's look, I, we have acquisitions guys who like are looking and finding deals and we have, you know, we have smart finance people who think about things that I haven't even thought of. Like, it, yeah, it's, it's just, and we're doing bigger deals and we have more people we can call. Like, yeah, in some ways, that the money in this business is almost like a, a lagging indicator of the relationships and knowledge. It's like that's what's really compounding is the relationships and reputation and knowledge, and like the the money comes out as, as a, a you know after that. Yep. You always mention that you're like you always bring your sons into this. Is there something? Is there? Do you dream that they would take over it because that would be cool? Like, how do you really, how are you really thinking about that? I think it's something that's really interesting. I have two daughters. I take my four-year-old to work with me all the time. I think it would be like amazing if, I don't care if she owns the business or just wants to work in it, but like how much would that really mean to you? And and for what reasons does it mean something to you? Yeah. I, I think it's um, phenomenal. Uh, it's, such a, it's such an interesting question. A couple of things to say. One is, and I talked actually about this on a podcast I did with Mike Boyd a couple of weeks ago. It was released a couple of weeks ago. We went really deep into all kinds of my fam crazy family stuff. I will say a couple of things. One is, I really do think of myself as sort of like a spiritual heir of my great grandfather who had an opportunity to build one of these businesses and didn't for various reasons. And so there's a part of me that feels like I'm sort of like building something that should have existed, but did not when I became an adult. And therefore like I'm sort of re recreating something that should exist. So that's part of it. The other thing is to say, like I had this epiphany when I was reading, I can't remember if it was Rupert Murdoch's biography or Ted Turner's, but, but basically both of them inherited businesses from their fathers, which they then like, like grew to the moon. And I remember having this moment of being like, boy, I wish I had had like a family business that I could kind of take over and do that with. And some of that was like the feeling of a bootstrapped entrepreneur looking over at other people and being like, boy, the grass is greener over there. And like, I now know people who have like taking, are taking over their parents' businesses. And that's not a picnic either. Like, you know, the old man's still around making them feel dumb. And like, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, and I have some thoughts about how I might try to avoid that if one of my children is interested in the business. But what I mean to say is that if they choose not to be in it, that will be sad for me, but it will not be like, it will not like erase everything that I did with my life. Like money is money. If we have to like, we'll hire some great outsider or promote someone who already works here and they will run it and my kids will get checks or they will sell and everyone will have a bunch of capital or who the hell knows. Like it'll be fine. Like everyone's going to make a bunch of money. It's good. So what I'm doing is almost like, working to create an option that I didn't have and like they'll have. And if they're for whatever reason, they don't want to take it like, okay. Or, or by the way, or if they're incapable of taking it, like there are people who should not be in charge of businesses and you can't tell until they're older, whether they will be or not or whatever. But if one of them can do it great and wants to do it great. If not, like I'll be sad, but it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. I'm sure this is on Mike Boyd's podcast, so I'm sorry for double asking. No, maybe no, it okay. is, I'm maybe it's not. But are your kids guaranteed going to get a check from you one day? What would need to happen for them not to get anything? Like, how are you going to talk to them about, look, there's this thing and would love to have you involved. But if you choose this direction in life, which is doing bad things or whatever, it's not there. Like, how do you plan on having that conversation? And now this is purely selfish because I only have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I'm going to learn from you here. 
Yeah, well, I don't look. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't know if you're going to learn from me. I'll tell you what I'm doing. And my kids are a little older than yours, so so I've had like more time with this. It would be hard for me. To, uh, there are a few things that I could imagine them doing with their lives that would cause me not to want to give them money. But it, like those things would be like becoming criminals or like drug addicts or you know what I mean. Like my family's position on this has always been that our capital, by which by our now I'm talking about my parents and my grandparents, is not something to be squandered, but is instead something to be passed down to the next generation. And the expectation is has always been that we, the next generation, will get it. And then that and there is an expectation that in turn we will pass along to the next generation. And is that the smartest thing? Well, you know what? It's worked out like over two, three generations now. Does that mean that it necessarily will? for the fourth generation or whatever? No. Like the older I get, the more skeptical I am about these sort of like rules or like structures, like here's how to think about inheritance. It's because it's so, it depends on you. It depends on your kids. It depends on, there's so many factors that, that are, that make every situation sort of idiosyncratic. So you can't like, there's no rule. There's just, you love your kids and you try to do right by them and half the time you screw up and they'll have something to talk to their therapists about. That's my father's big line that I've stolen. (laughs) And and you just, you know, I don't know, like, so I'm making something great and I hope that they'll appreciate it and that it will be a good thing in their lives. And if it's not like, I did my best, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like what else can I do? When do you have you even started talking to your oldest about it? Like, what, like, what do you even tell a ten year old at this at this age? Oh, dude, I had a <laughs> I had a whole conversation <laughs> with my eight year old this morning about okay. buying buildings, <laughs> <laughs> specifically real estate, private equity style. I'm like, you get these investors, and you get fees, and you get part of the building. It's a great business. <laughs> no, I mean, I talk to them, like the truth is that they it, sometimes they're interested, often they're bored out of their minds, and they tell me so. My oldest son told me at one point that he was going to sell all the buildings and do something more interesting with the money. So, you know, I just talked to them. I mean, I've always, for better or worse, and honestly, for a lot, a lot, sometimes it's been worse. I have always treated my children like little adults and it's, it's not always good. Like sometimes they, they, because obviously younger children are not capable of understanding nuance in the way that adults are and they don't. So, so sometimes like I'll hear them say something, which is basically them repeating back something. And I said, like, whoa, that's you getting that wrong. And I did the wrong thing by talking to you about that. So I don't. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the right thing to do all the time, but I just have always like kind of wanted to treat them like little people with their own, with like brains that work and they're with the own ability to think about the world and everything. So I just like for better or worse have been a fairly open book about things and I'm feeling broke. I tell them when, when we have a big win, we tell them that. And I, you know, we, I've taken them obviously to job sites and to tour buildings and, and they're growing up in the business and they're going to have to decide whether it's something that they want, but they're definitely like getting steeped in it. Yeah. That's awesome. I have a little pink desk for my four-year-old. She sits with me in the <laughs> office. Like my goal right now, even at that age is just be around, just kind of observe no expectations and we'll kind of see how it develops. But yeah. Well, you need to, I mean, one thing to say is that there are only, there's only a certain kind of like, there's a certain, there's only a few personality types that should be running these kind of businesses. Like one of the things that I worry about a little bit with retweet and also just like the broader real estate, private equity world right now is that the technology to do these deals has democratized. And by technology, I don't mean literally like computers, but I mean like the ideas, like how you structure an operating agreement with with LPs, like that kind of stuff. Like there's, you can take all these courses and there's books and so that knowledge is is widely dispersed. And so there's a lot of people doing deals. Most people should not, in my opinion, be trusted to be fiduciaries on behalf of investors, like for a variety of reasons. It's a very weird personality type that has both the risk acceptance necessary to do deals, but also the risk avoidance necessary not to get into trouble in all kinds of different ways that you can get into trouble. And so the way, I mean, so so getting back to the kids, it's like, 
you don't know until someone reaches early adulthood, probably, whether they are even going to be the type of person who should be trusted with a lot of other people's capital. That's so true. And even if the, even if growing up, yeah, daddy, I do want to be in the business, blah, 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 that can change kind of on a dime. And so you ha- it's upon you to set it up to where it either works with them, but it'll definitely work without them. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I think that that part of that is getting to a scale where you can, where you can have internal candidates who have like grown up in the culture of your enterprise and therefore are trustworthy, or you're big enough that you can hire from the outside. And like, obviously there's problems with that too, but, but yeah, you like it, it, this probably doesn't work if you have a $50 million portfolio. If you have a billion dollar portfolio, you probably can have someone who's not a family member do a really good job running it. Kind of talking about just growth of business real quick. I'm kind of switching subjects a little bit, but, and and I'll speak from a little bit of experience, but I think this is where we have a lot of similarities in structure is you started kind of third-party managing while buying deals. And then you've let kind of both of those business units grow. I kind of started with like just doing deals. And then in the last two years brought in property management And actually right now we're looking to ramp up our third party property management business as an extra layer of income and kind of balance if we hit a rough patch. Are you trying to get more into that business or are you trying to just get more into ownership at this point? Like, are we headed in the same way or are we actually reversing? No, no, no. We're heading the same way. I'm actually going to meet a guy tomorrow about taking over. Ah, You actually helped me with this. We're in the late stages of talking to a guy who's got like a, a pretty large building, at least for Los Angeles which I didn't even know how to organize a management agreement for a building of this size. And you, I don't know if you even remember this, it's like a year, a year and a half ago, you introduced me to some people who run a property management company and, and, and they were great and helped me think about how to organize the management agreement and everything. So, so yeah, we're, we're very much trying to grow that business. The caveat is that, uh, and this is something that I've experienced. And I didn't put into words until I heard a, podcast uh, with one of the guys from Chenmark, which is like a small business holdco. And the line was basically like, there is a maximum growth rate for a service business past which you do not go unless you are prepared to tolerate some serious growing pains. And that's like the property management business is a people business. If you grow it too fast, your people and systems break and it's a nightmare. And um, we went through it. I mean, we doubled the size of our management portfolio four times over the last nine years. Double, 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 double. And like, and it that's like an insane growth rate. And like, everything broke, and people wore out, and we're in the wrong positions, and our systems broke, and it was really bad. <laughs> I'm glad we did it because we got to scale, but it was like the way you've done it where you waited to, to spin it up until you were already at scale was like a much smarter thing to do than what we did. So there's a long way of saying, I do want to continue to grow the business, but I'm kind of like titrating the growth to say like, what can we handle internally and how fast can we hire and like acclimate people and everything? I don't basically, I don't want to grow so fast. Like I'm, I'd be great with 15% a year growth or something like that. Yeah. In the overall property management business. Yep. Okay. You've been generous. Got a few more, but like, what is, is there anything that's keeping you up at night? Like obviously a downturn is from a societal perspective, not great, but in the investment business, it, it, it opens up some great opportunities it sounds, you know, for the the last going into COVID, everything was like last inning, last inning, last inning. Everybody was betting on the downfall, didn't really come. Now the conversation seems to have searched back to like, woo, smooth sailing, print money, everything's good, which has now got me thinking like, okay, this is probably the time or we're, but like, what's going to cause this? Or like, what's on your mind right now? Is there anything that like comes to mind when I just kind of riff on that for a second? Well, I mean, what you just described, I think, is like in the minds of every single investment manager uh, in, in every asset class, who's anyone who's thoughtful anyway. And I, too, had the feeling like, OK, maybe COVID's going to COVID's going to like be this cyclical reset. And in certain ways, it was in like the specifically in the L.A. rental market, but not even in the market for assets. So the answer is, yeah, like I'm pretty nervous. It feels, so I'll tell you 
and I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you why I think the way I think and then why I think that might be wrong. So it's like, we're going to get back to not really knowing anything anyway, but I think it's maybe interesting. <laughs> it's just fun to talk <laughs> about. <laughs> yeah. So there has been a pretty stable relationship in our little world between the price of buildings, the price of construction, the rents you can get, and the OPEX. In other words, that when we were talking about early in the conversation about those value-add deals, like you have been able to get your unlevered yield to exceed your cost of ca- your your loan constant in a pretty stable way for 10 years okay and that relationship held true even though prices were sort of slowly rising during that period and rents were rising and so were construction prices and interest rates like moved around like but the equation was pretty stable the equation is now as we've discussed like fully out of whack like you're just not compensated for the risk. Okay. So I don't know if I want to say that that's like a, like a, like an indicator for the wider economy or anything, but it definitely makes me feel like Wiley Coyote may have run off the cliff. Now, like Wiley Coyote can stay in the air, you know, until he looks down and, but, but he possibly can stay up there for a long time. But that is what is making me nervous. But then, as I said, to go back to why maybe that doesn't matter is like, well, maybe there, maybe the last 10 years were an anomaly and like, there's no like law that says that value add real estate actually ought to work. But I think value add real estate should work. Like when smart people invest a lot of time and attention in things they ought to be compensated by a fairly stable amount of return that reflects their th- those smart people spending time on something. So if the market is out of whack such that that time and effort is not being co- and risk acceptance is not being compensated, that to me says prices have have got out of whack with the underlying fundamentals. And so that, so anyway, so that's, so that's where I'm coming from. I I don't know how to fully articulate this thought, but I was talking to our buddy, Nick, the other day on the phone, and I don't know how to weigh in, like if we just took, even in Texas where it's probably faster, but we went to LA and we said, you know, 20 years ago to build a 40 unit building in LA from the time you had the idea to the time you opened your doors, maybe three years. That's now, let's call it five, maybe six years from the day you dream it to the day it's open. We were joking on Twitter yesterday about uh, Grand Central Station in in New York, and I made a comment. I said, it'll cost infinity, and it the basically the project will never end. And then I go back to, hey, it's great to own the real estate if it's already built and occupied, if everything else is now taking, and there's like nothing on the horizon that that time horizon is getting any less. It seems like it's exponentially actually getting longer. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by part of the internet. People can chat. You can have these groups formed to stop things. And, you know, somebody told me the other day the Empire State Building was built in 18 months. Like to do it again today would take 10 years. And so when you were saying, like, I wonder if value add uh, real estate should be compensated for, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't. But there's not a whole lot of real estate that's going to get built over the next 20 years at the rate that it had for so long to kind of stop it. And so I wonder, like, how much of the equation is built on this lack of supply? And I'm not talking about, like, even in L.A. where, you know, it's really tight. I'm talking about even in Texas. When I first started developing, shit took 18 months. It's taking three to three and a half years now. How do you think about that? Well, I think like one of the things that I think, like, let's go back to like first principles here. Imagine you're starting a city, okay? Uh, and there's no buildings. It's basically like greenfield, right? It's really easy to build stuff. There's no neighbors. No one's telling you what to do. No, okay, right? And the land is close in. Over time, as you develop and that thing turns into like infill, right? Like now you've got a city and you've got all these entrenched interest groups who want to have a say in what gets built. And most of the best land is taken and everything that's not that, that, that you want to develop is already, there's already a fourplex on it, but like your tenants, the tenants rights guys have convinced the zoning guys that if you rip down an RSO fourplex, your new building has to be RSO. You know what I mean? Like there's basically like, as the thing gets bigger and more entrenched, 
almost by definition, there's less land, that what's there is further away, what's in, what's in close is more expensive, and there's more interest groups that are going to fight you because generally people don't like change. Like one of the rules I've learned about life is like the status quo is the status quo because basically almost everyone likes it that way, or at least can tolerate it that way. So like if you're trying to change the status quo, by definition, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are like, whoa, 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 I like the way things are. Like, you know what I mean? So like basically why shouldn't it get harder? Like even somewhere like Texas, like even if you don't have the craziness that we have, like so part of like becoming a, going from being an immature to a mature country is your urban areas just get harder to develop in. Now that would be an argument for founding new cities. Like go do that elsewhere, but like even that our society feels like it's so sclerotic right now that we can't even, you know, we can't can't someone will sue you about the environmental impact of like building on that land over there in the desert that should notionally be free to build on. You know what I mean? Yep. Okay. I'm going to ask you one more thing about, we talked about downturn being psychological. I think about this too. It seemed like back in 08, 09, before social media had really taken off and we were just seeing shit all day, every day, you know, if CNBC came on and said, Hey, Congress is trying to work to get a bill done so that they don't hit the debt ceiling, you know what I'm saying? And people would like freak the F out. Now you hear it and it's like, oh, it's like Tuesday. They'll get it done, whatever. My my I'm leading into our tolerance for what used to be a disaster continues to go up. Terrorist attacks happen more often and people don't school shootings. It's like, oh, it's just kind of normal. It's like, do you think that these prolonged cycles are also coming from this idea that people don't get as freaked out about things anymore that they used to? That is the first time I've heard that articulated. So the answer is, my answer is that I want to think about it. It's, <laughs> okay. it's, a, it's going to sound a little bit obnoxious, but I read a lot and I talk to a lot of people and it's kind of like pretty rare that I hear like really genuinely original ideas. And that, that what you just said is a, like, to me is a genuinely original idea. So like I want to, basically I want to chew on it a little bit, but yeah, it's a potentially like quite profound observation actually. I think about like when I when I saw Evergrande come out with the 380 billion in Chinese debt and then I go back to like Lehman kind of having an issue is like people were like fuck it 380 billion overseas uh, we already, like, yeah we already saw that movie like yeah whatever yeah. and then covid comes on it's like I just think we're getting conditioned that like man bad news is just so it's just so we're so used to it now in so many forms that the psychological impact it would take to really implode the market gets higher and higher and allows us to go for longer and longer. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying it's kind of an observation I think about. It's a, lot. a really interesting, like almost like media analysis. It's funny. We're like, we've, we've like left real estate and we've got into like cultural criticism. But I, I, I mean, I think there is, I mean, look, as you and I both know, like to a very large extent, this stuff is all psychological, like sort of in like a mass psychological sense. And like people, the animal spirits matter and uh, a lot. And yeah, no, it's a, it's a, that's really interesting. I'm going to think about that for like the rest of the day now. Our lives are simply like a byproduct to some degree of the story that we tell ourselves every day. We're limited by what we tell ourselves. All right, I'm going to leave you on one question. And I think a lot of people would want to know this just given, you know, how you look at the world. But if I gave you a billion dollars and you had to put it all to work, I'm not, somebody said three years. I'm not even giving you that much. And let's just assume if that was like buy multi in LA, you could deploy it all. Like, let's not take the actual Yeah, that's nuance. what I was going to say. Cause you, you, yeah. If you had a billion dollars that you had to deploy by the end of the year and the actual like physical ability to do it was there, where would that billion go right now? If it wasn't in multifamily in LA, no, I'll, well, leave, it, I mean, I'll leave it there. <laughs> no, let me say, I mean, I want to, this is going to be mealy mouth, but so I want to lead by saying really fundamentally that that honestly is outside my circle of competence. Like, and what I mean by that is like, I'm, I'm really serious. Like I am not a capital allocator. I pitched Patrick O'Shaughnessy on being on his podcast like two years ago. And, and I was like, it's like, invest like the best. And I'm like, here's why I'm an investor. And he's like, you're not an investor. You're, <laughs> you're like a user of capital, not an allocator <laughs> of capital. And he is actually like a hundred percent, right. It really like, clarified my thinking about my business to a very large extent. Like, that's not me. Like, I'm not running an endowment. I don't, I mean, my personal investments are like 90 plus percent in Los Angeles real estate and like 
some S&P 500 index funds, and then like some weird one-off stocks that I bought because some people who are smart on Twitter told me that theirs are good things to buy. Like, the, like it's about the like least thoughtful asset allocation that you could imagine. <laughs> so, so that's a big way of saying this is outside my circle of confidence. Now, if you force me to answer, what I would say is I would put the vast majority of the money into moderately leverage cash flow generating assets that are hard to replicate or for which the, or the cost for which to replicate is sort of tied to inflation. So what I mean by that is whether it's like apartment buildings or whether it's industrial or whatever like something that is preventing someone from with cheap capital from just coming in and competing with you. So and like zoning is a great mode for that. But there are plenty of companies that sort of fit this description as well. So I like I'd like Businesses like with pricing power, with with moderate amount, with levered because it's nice to have, whether you're levering it at the portfolio level or, or whether it's being levered at the business level, like in an inflationary environment, you'd like to have at least some amount of leverage helping you. And then I would, but but I do think I would put some small portion, uh, who knows what small is, onto the other side of the barbell. Like I think that that there are just this extraordinarily exciting things happening in tech and crypto i'm like i'm sort of like almost crying to say that because it's so it like it hurts my like inner value investor to say it but there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on and and i think it would be stupid if you're talking about allocating capital for the long term not to have some serious exposure to the disruption that's happening there because i mean it's interesting stuff there's a lot of really smart people working on doing cool cool things all right buddy thank you so much Oh man, thanks for having me. And to everyone who's listening right now, thanks as always for uh, for putting up with me. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.